invite you to open with me this morning to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, we're going to begin reading in just a moment in verse 13, but if you're a kiddo and you're kindergarten through second grade, um, we've got a place back here for you. We'd love to invite you to go back there now. Uh, we've got a few, and uh, enjoy a time of worship there. Malachi chapter 3, beginning in just a moment in verse 13. I feel like as I, as I, say, as I said that this morning, we've been in Malachi 3 for a really long time. Uh, maybe you were here just a few weeks ago and you haven't been back since. You're like, my goodness, is he preaching the same passage again? Um, as I was preparing this week, I thought, we have, I've walked slower through this book than I have any book we've walked through as a church so far. But it's been so good and so rich this morning, we're going to close out Malachi 3, and next week, we'll finish our journey through Malachi altogether. But this morning is extra special. The passage is, it, it comes to a place in our journey through this book where we've got to make some decisions because God's people are confronted with some decisions that they have to make. You see, this week, there's a moment of decision for the people hearing this word. God calls them to the carpet and he says, okay, I've laid all this out for you. I've explained to you who I am. I've, I've given you great promises. I've, I've called you out in the middle of your sin. And, and now it's your opportunity to do something about it, to make a decision. And here's what we find this morning. God leads people to a place of decision concerning how they will live in relation to him. Every single person has an opportunity to decide who he is this morning. If you're into the sound of my voice today, you're gonna hear exactly who he is. If you're joining us online, listen, you're gonna hear exactly who he is. You're gonna hear how good he is. You're gonna hear how he calls you into relationship with himself. And this is not an isolated word. We've seen all throughout Malachi how God has said to his people, this is how you're living, this is how you should live. This is what you think of me, and this is what you should think of me. And we've seen him demonstrate his love to these people again and again. But this morning, we're going to see that some decisions are made. Now, before we dive into the passage, I want to say this as well. You may be sitting here and you say, well, that word's not for me. I've made a decision about who Jesus is. Um, I've trusted him as my Savior, and I'm walking with him, and, and we have a great relationship. I know him as my Lord. But this is for you. Because we're going to see in this passage some reminders this morning. Of, of when we came to that understanding and that realization, I want you to think back to that moment for a moment. Think back to that occasion where you trusted Jesus as your Savior. There's a reason you trusted him. And that enthusiasm that followed after that decision, that excitement, you couldn't wait to tell people about the decision you had made to trust Jesus. How often we forget that. How often we forget in the middle of difficulties just how good he has been all along the way. But this morning also is for those who have not made a decision. You're sitting in this room, and whether you've been here for 30 minutes or 30 years, maybe you've never made a decision about who Jesus is. You've never trusted him. You've never chosen to follow him as your Lord and Savior. This morning, we're going to see some good reasons why you should make that decision. With that in mind, would you stand with me and honor the reading of God's word, Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, and we'll read just through the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord through Malachi to God's people here and to us today by the inspiration of the Spirit. 
Your words against me are harsh, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider, or we decide, that the arrogant are to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and they escape. At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and he listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of armies. My own possession on the day I am preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your good word. Lord, it's especially challenging today. Lord, I pray that today is a a sweet reminder for all of us in the room who have chosen to follow you of who you are and, and why we made that decision. Some understandings that we had along the way. Lord, I certainly pray for those in this room who have never trusted you as their Savior, that today would be a a moment of decision, a moment of reckoning, a moment of understanding. God, anoint the proclamation of your word as only you can. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. This morning's passage has a rather simple simple structure to it. There's really just two parts we're going to consider. The first part of the message is going to come from verses 13 through 15. The second from verses 16 through 18. And we're going to see two contrasting pictures, two different decisions that people make about who God is and how they relate to him. And the first reality we see is this. The ungodly are separated from God. The ungodly are separated from God. Now, we've softened the wording a little bit here just because I didn't want to catch you off guard. But notice the word that God actually uses in verse 18. He calls the ungodly wicked. And initially when I was writing out the outline, it it said the wicked are separated from God. And I thought, you know what, that's a little bit strong. So let's call them the ungodly because that's really who they are. These are the people who make a decision to reject God, to walk away from him, to push back against his counsel, to push back against his invitation to follow him. Now, You find some repetition here as we start into this last and final accusation that God makes of his people. You see, we finally arrive at this this sixth and last of God's accusations against them. Now, there are two things that immediately should jump out to us as we consider everything we've read so far. This is why, as we preach through God's word here at First Baptist Church, we start at the beginning of a book and we walk all the way through. Because guess what? We see things along the way that certainly reinforce what we read here. Let me show you how that is true. Notice if you look back at verse 12 and consider that in light of verse 13, that there's this turning on a dime with God. Notice what he says in verse 12. God's speaking to his people. He's blessing his people. And he says, then all the nations will consider you fortunate or blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. What a sweet blessing. What a sweet promise he gives to his people. But then we get to verse 13, and God's right back at him again. Look at how he turns on a dime. He says, your words against me are harsh. If, I, if we're reading this and we read it in light of everything else, we're like, wait a minute, God. You, you, couldn't you have finished at verse 12? Couldn't you have just wrapped everything up there for just a minute? 
You've said this again and again and again to us, and this should catch our attention. But more than that, I want you to go all the way back to chapter 2 and verse 17. I want you to see how these words in every way are almost identical to what we see there. Go ahead and turn one page over, if you will. Chapter 2 and verse 17. We looked at this just a couple weeks ago. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Doesn't that sound familiar? Right? You have spoke harshly against me. You have wearied me with your words. Again, dealing with the sinfulness of his people. Notice, though, it continues. Yet you ask, how have we wearied him? And there in chapter 3 and verse 13, they say, yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? Doesn't that sound familiar? But I want you to see how God acts at the beginning of chapter 3 in response to their accusation. What does he do? He does something. He gives them a promise. He begins to act on their behalf. You see, he answers with his activity the accusations the people have made against him. We looked at this, right? God's actions on behalf of his people are his defense of who he is. He promises his people at the beginning of chapter 3, he says, I'm going to send a messenger. I'm going to send someone to you. I'm going to send, we saw it this way, a Messiah. Right? God says, I'm going to show you exactly who I am. We see his response. But as we get to verse 16 and verses 14 through 15, we begin to see that God's already answered with his activity. When we get to this passage, the change happens when he says, I've already shown you who I am. I've already told you what my promises are. It's up for you to decide now what to do with that. This is significant, church. God leaves this in our court, so to speak. And he says, listen, you're going to make a decision about what you're going to do with everything that I've told you. It's been like a broken record all along. Him making an accusation, his people denying that accusation, and then him answering in a certain way. But in this case, he says, hey, you get to decide now. It's up to you. So with that in mind, let's see three characteristics of how the ungodly arrive at their decision to reject God. The first thing we see in verse 13 is the ungodly, they disagree with God regarding their conduct. They disagree with God regarding their conduct. By this point, this should be, again, a broken record. We've seen this pattern of repetition over and over again in God's word. When God repeats himself, it is not by accident. It's not because he's out of his mind. He is trying to communicate to us something very clearly, something that we often miss and here's what we often miss, and I'll say it again. We've said it a few times already, and write it down. A right relationship with God first begins with a right understanding of ourselves in relation to God. In other words, we first have to understand our sinfulness, our brokenness, and our need for him. Again, I don't know about you, but I don't like admitting that I need to depend on someone or something. If you're like me, you like to stand on your own a little bit. You like to figure things out for yourself. You see, the first step towards a relationship with him is understanding we need him. And over and over again, we've seen God's people deny this reality. Notice what they said in verse 13. They asked the same question they've asked all along the way. They said, what have we spoken against you? What have we really done wrong? But secondly, notice this in verse 14. The ungodly are also broken by legalism. They're broken by legalism. Now, I'm going to define that word for you in just a moment. It may be a strange word to you, and that's okay. 
I'm going to give you a, a really easy to remember or easy to understand definition. But look back with me at verse 14 at what God's people say to God. They said, it is useless to serve God. Wow, what a bold statement. What have we gained by keeping his requirements? Notice that. By keeping his requirements, by keeping his law, and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies. Notice, they point to the fact that they have kept God's commandments. They have done exactly, they feel like, what God has told them to do, and they've gained nothing from it. That's legalism. Here's a simple definition for you. You can write this down. Legalism is dependence on keeping a moral law instead of depending on a personal relationship with Jesus. Legalism is saying, listen, if I can just check these boxes and do these things, then that gives me right standing before the Lord. How does that play itself out in our lives? Well, some of you this morning, you're going to leave this place and you're going to say, it's going to be a good week. I went to church today, right? Or some of you are going to leave this place and you're going to say, hey, it's going to be a good week. Um, I gave some money in the offering plate before I left. Hey, it's going to be a good week because when we were singing, I sang extra loud. Hey, I even had my Bible open the whole time he was preaching. Or maybe you're going to, you know, tout that you didn't fall asleep during the sermon today. That's great. Please don't, okay? But listen, just checking those boxes, that doesn't mean you have a relationship with Jesus. That is a shaky foundation at best. In fact, you've missed out in reality on who God is. It's not about keeping the rules and following a set of parameters. Paul repeats this reality in Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 20 through 21. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen carefully. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Paul says, listen, if you're going to depend on keeping the law, then why did Jesus go to the cross? Friends, our relationship is built upon knowing Jesus, understanding what he has done for us, not what we can do for ourselves. Notice how Paul continues in Ephesians chapter 2 in verses 8 and 9. We see that he says there, for you are saved by grace and through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. He says very plainly, it's not about just following the rules. It's not about just living uprightly. No, he says it is by grace, the grace of God, and by faith that you place in him that you have a right standing before him. Here's the reality, though. If we lean into legalism too far, keeping those rules, keeping a strict set of commands, here's what happens. We are robbed of our joy if we cling to the law more than our Redeemer. There is no joy in just keeping the law and following the rules. It's fleeting joy at best. Notice what it says in the text there in verse 14. They said, we've kept the rules, right? We've kept the requirements walking mournfully before the Lord. This phrase is unique in the Old Testament. It's as if God is saying, listen, I'm going to use this particular set of words here to really grab your attention. It occurs nowhere else in the Old Testament. Nowhere else in the Old Testament does God say, people are walking before me mournfully because they want to earn my favor. But that's exactly what they were doing here. Why? Because it was a joyless legalism. Notice this. They had a knowledge of who the Lord was. 
They knew who he was, but they missed out on really knowing him. What does it say there in verse 14? It says they walked mournfully before the Lord. That phrase before the Lord means that he was in their mind. In other words, they knew who he was. They knew what he had done. They knew even the promises he might have made along the way. But instead of really knowing him in right relationship with him, they said, listen, we're going to deny that you're a just God. We're going to accuse you of not understanding how the world should work. They missed out on all of this because of their religious activity. Let me illustrate it to you like this. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. Now, we, I shared this illustration with you last week. I talked briefly about this young man, but I want you to be here with me. I want you to read it along with me. I want you to see what's happening here. It says, as he was setting out on a journey, this is Jesus. Jesus was setting out on a journey. A man ran up and he knelt down before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Jesus quotes exactly what the commandments are, and that young man recognizes them, and guess what he says? He says, teacher, I've kept all of these from my youth. He says, I've always been a good boy. That's what he says. Verse 21, looking at him. Don't miss that. Don't read past that too quickly. Jesus looks at him. Imagine that gaze for just a moment. The son of God standing before him, he looks at him. And it says, Jesus loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. The young man has a decision to make. He's confronted with who Jesus is, even his love for him, that gaze that is undeniable. And notice what he does in verse 22. But he was dismayed by this demand. And he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Did you catch that? He was wrapped up in legalism. He was wrapped up in doing all the right things. And when he was confronted with the very presence of God in the person of Jesus Christ, he missed it. Now, before we're too quick to judge, because we are, we're looking at this guy, we're shaking our fists at him saying, dude, how did you miss this? It's Jesus. You've seen what he's done. How did you? Church, how do we miss him? How do we miss who he is? How do we walk out of this place again thinking we've done the right things to earn his favor, to know him, and miss out exactly on who he is? Don't miss out on who he is. Don't cling to the law and miss out on who the Redeemer is. Notice this final thing about this ungodly response in verse 15. The ungodly have a finite perspective. In other words, they can't see everything. Those who reject God, they, they fail to recognize that they don't see the whole picture when God does. Make sure you see in verse 15 just how badly they missed it. Look at it. It says, so now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. 
Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. So they're saying, we have a problem with the arrogant. When they, in fact, are being arrogant themselves. How arrogant is it to look at God and say, listen, God, you've missed this. You've made a mistake somewhere along the way. Again, the blindness is incredibly real here. Don't miss it. There were two errors that they made with their finite perspective. Write these down, two errors. Number one, their eyes were on man more than God. Their eyes were on man more than God. Now, we miss this in the text because we're reading an English translation of the Scriptures. Understand in the original Hebrew here, what's happening is word order in Hebrew conveys importance of meaning. In other words, whatever's most important, you put at the end. Whatever's the afterthought, guess what? You put it at the end. So you put the most important at the beginning, you put the least important at the end. Where do you think God is positioned in this passage? At the end. What's first on their thoughts? The activity of man. And because of that, their eyes are more on mankind than they are on God, and they miss out on who God is. Secondly, their eyes were more on God's justice than his grace. They recognize, listen, we want your justice now, at this moment, in this way, and they forget that God is gracious and infinitely loving and merciful. They miss out on the treasure of who he is because they're so focused on what is right in front of them. I wanted to turn to Psalm 73 in verses 18 through 25. You read that later. I don't really have time this morning. But you go there, and I want you to read that. I want you to see the picture of the psalmist is, is wrestling with God, and he's saying all the very same things that these people are saying. They're, he's saying, listen, God, you've missed it. You've made a mistake. Look at the wickedness around it. It's going unpunished. And then there's a turning point, and he begins to understand, wait a minute, no, God, you're good. And the psalmist literally says, I've been stupid about this. That's the actual wording. I've been stupid about this. I've missed this. I've forgotten who you are. You've been so good to me. What the psalmist got right, the people of God here missed, and so often we miss as well. So friend, don't miss out on who he is and the relationship he offers to you. We've seen the response of those who find themselves separated from God, the ungodly. They refused to rightly see their own sinfulness. They focused more on being rule keepers instead of falling in love with the one who was right in front of them. They missed seeing God's infinite grace by demanding his justice immediately on others. But we don't have to miss out like they did because this beautiful opportunity for decision continues as we get to verse 16. And here's what we find. The righteous are adopted by God. The righteous are adopted by God. Now, again, the wording here, I don't want you to miss this. The wording here is, is specific. Don't mistake that when we say the righteous are, are people righteous in and of themselves, like a self-righteousness. No, these folks understand that their righteousness only comes from one. They recognize that they are broken. We, we were going to see that in just a moment. And they recognize that their righteousness is only by what God imparts to them. Again, this passage is portraying two vastly different responses. Notice that the first group that God brought, they brought an accusation against God. But this is the first time in the book of Malachi, as we look at verses 16 through 18, where we see a different response. And it should catch our attention, church. The first thing we see about this response from the righteous people we see that the righteous are blessed for their humility. They're blessed for their 
humility. I think it's interesting in verse 16 that instead of talking at God, accusing him of something, what does it say in verse 16? They huddled up together. They talked to one another. It says, at that time, those who feared the Lord, they spoke to each other. It's as if the people of God here, the people who are going to respond rightly, they, they looked at one another and said, wait a minute, God's been talking all along the way. I know these guys over here, they're continuing to deny their sinfulness and their brokenness, but something doesn't quite seem right. So they begin to talk to each other. They, they feel, it's obvious here, they feel unworthy to even speak to him. But I want you to see what God does in response to that. It says, the Lord took notice and listened. Ain't that beautiful? He sees the people of God. These people are responding to him rightly. And he says, I'm paying attention to those folks right there. I'm going to listen in to what's going on. And here's what we find. We find that they begin to understand the concept of, of God's superiority. Who he is. How great he is. And I want you to see ultimately how this concept of, of God's superiority, his greatness, it's echoed into the New Testament. This idea is not isolated just to this passage. I want you to see how Jesus himself continues to affirm this. In John chapter 20 and verse 28, we find this experience for a guy named Thomas. And Thomas is confronted with the resurrected Lord in flesh and blood right in front of him. And Thomas places his hands into the wounds on Jesus' side and places his fingers into the wounds in his hand. And guess what he says to him? Look at it. He said, my Lord and my God. His response was one of awe and wonder. These words are no accident. Don't miss out on what he's saying here. Again, this term Lord is lost on us. We don't understand that within our culture. Why? Because we're always a, a, a per people of rebelliousness. We don't like the idea of lordship and submission. But the New Testament concept of Lord, it conveyed the idea of one who was indeed master. One who required allegiance, obedience, and submission. And so when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, he says, I am pledging my life to you. I recognize your greatness, your infiniteness, and my finiteness. I recognize that I'm nothing in relation to who you are. We, of course, don't gravitate towards this aspect of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ being one of submission. Sure, we like knowing that we can pray to him. We like knowing that he is with us. We like knowing that he has paid the price for our sins as our redeemer. But we must be careful, church, not to cheapen his grace. When God calls us to salvation, make no mistake about this, he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And so humility becomes the only appropriate response when we are confronted with the holiness of a great God. But notice this second truth. It doesn't stop there. The righteous, they, they don't just benefit from this, this concept of, of God's superiority. They don't just benefit from being blessed for their humility. They also, the righteous, recognize that they have eternal security. We see that in verse 17. The righteous realize that they have a great promise in Jesus Christ. I want you to notice two things that are wrapped up with this idea of security. This idea of peace. Number one, certainty. Certainty. 
people of God, the righteous, the people who respond to him in relationship, in humility, they recognize without any mistake, they are certain of this truth. Notice what God's word says in verse 17. This is beautiful. Lean in close. They will be mine. How beautiful is that? They will be mine. He says, my own possession on the day I am preparing. God takes note of these people. He, he listens into their conversation. And he responds by saying, those people, they're mine. I've got them. Notice what we find as we continue reading into John chapter 10 and verse 29. Jesus says these very words. He says, my father who has given them to me, he is greater than all. Again, the greatness of God, no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Jesus says, I've got you. I've got you. In the middle of heartache and pain, in the middle of the turmoil of our cultural climate, guess what he says to his people? He says, I've got you. I'm holding on tight. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, we read this beautiful word. He gave himself for us to redeem us or to purchase us, that word is, from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. You see that? God says again and again, and I could take you to countless passages where he says, I've got you, and I will not let go. God's people are certain of this, but secondly, they're aware of God's intimacy, his intimacy, that he loves them. Now, I know we sing cute songs in vacation Bible school and in kids' church and Sunday school growing up. You might remember singing, Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. And I think at some point in our lives, we begin to forget how incredible that reality is, that God, the creator of the heavens and earth, he says, I love you and I want to know you. Notice as we see the second sentence there in verse 17, he says, I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. This idea of him being compassion and calling the people of God sons and daughters. This word compassion in verse 17, it's a special one. It literally means this. It means to have mercy on one who is in an unfavorable, difficult, or dangerous situation. It's kind of like when we look at the situation so many miles away in Afghanistan. And it's on our mind. We think about it. We see those images replayed again and again in our minds. And we look at them and what, we do, what do we do? We have compassion on them. Now here's the reality. We are helpless to do anything about that. But God is certainly not helpless. And so when we read in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this way, that while we were still sinners, that unfavorable, dangerous, compromising, hopeless situation, he is indeed not helpless even if we are. What does it say he did? He died for us. He gave his son for us. God's people, the righteous who choose to follow him, they know these things to be true. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26. This is your notes. For through faith you are all sons of God in Jesus Christ. What an incredible declaration. For God, our creator, to call us sons and daughters. But finally, in verse 18, we find this important truth. The righteous then serve God from a position of blessing. 
They serve God. Their response is to serve him from a position of understanding all of these truths. Don't miss this. They're, they're not serving because of legalism. They're not serving to earn his favor. They're serving because they know they are loved. Notice he says at the beginning of verse 18, he says, so you will again see. That word see, he's saying, listen, look at this. Behold, look at what I'm showing you. He says, you will see the difference between the righteous and the wicked. What is that difference? Well, we've looked at it all along the way. Listen close. This is the difference. The ungodly refuse to admit their brokenness, but the righteous humble themselves before God as their Lord. The ungodly, bound to legalism, they serve God to earn his favor. The righteous, however, serve God because they know they are favored. The ungodly have a here and now, finite, only now focus. And so they miss who God is as the infinite God. But the righteous, guess what? They have an eternal realization, a perspective that stretches beyond this life into the next. Guess what? A realization that leads them to understand God's compassion and God's intimacy. There are only two choices to make regarding who God is. For some of you in this room, you've made that decision. You've trusted Jesus as your Savior at some point in time along your life's journey. And this morning, I pray this has been a fresh reminder of all of these good things. This security you have. When God says, I've got you in the midst of heartache and pain. What a sweet truth. But for some of you in this room, you've never trusted Jesus. You've never given your life to him. You've never made a decision to accept his invitation and give your life to him. There are only two decisions to make. You either humbly follow him and trust him, or in hostility, in denial, you reject him. Here's what I invite you to do. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, stay after service for a few minutes. I'd love to talk to you. I'll just grab me by the hand as you're leaving this morning. Listen, not many people are going to pay attention. They're in a hurry to get to lunch, okay? But grab me by the hand as you're leaving and say, hey, I need to talk to you a minute. Maybe you're walking through some sort of hurt or pain. Listen, grab me by the hand and say, hey, pastor, I need to talk to you for a minute. I would love to be a, a, a person who can remind you again of these beautiful truths and walk with you through that season. Or maybe, just maybe, maybe, just maybe, you've been reminded of these things and you've been blessed by it. Here's what I encourage you to do. As you leave here today, don't walk around as one who is mourning anymore. Walk with joy, gladness, enthusiasm, because you know who he is.